Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that today we have back one of our very first guests when we started last year. Lionel Shriver is one of our most celebrated novelists. She's the author of such books as Big Brother and We Need to Talk About Kevin. She's a columnist for The Spectator, but she's also seen more and more on different media, such as most recently Question Time. Um, thank you for coming back. Uh, a year later. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. We had a good time last time. Yes, we did indeed. Yeah, we had a two-parter last time. Um, I, I wanted to start, it's very much in the air, sorry, pardon that terrible pun, it's very much in the air at the moment when we're recording this, uh, the coronavirus. Um, I, I wanted to know what your view on this was. I know that uh, you wrote an article quite recently, um, and I think it was sort of, obviously, relatively light-hearted, but you were talking about how the whole kind of woke nonsense, which we addressed last time, what might actually change that, and you said it would be something very serious happening, um, possibly a worldwide epidemic, and, and here we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't mean to be frivolous about this, and I know you weren't being, but I mean, it does seem to appear to have wiped off, you know, from social media, some of the more outrageous sort of stuff going on. Yeah, for now. Yeah, for now. Um, yes, I've said from the beginning that uh, the likes of identity politics are, are, are an indulgence. Yeah. They're ultimately an entertainment, a rather poisonous form in my view. Um, but it's, a, it's something that uh, society can only afford in a condition of peace and prosperity. Um, it's a kind of thumb twiddling, really. Mm. And uh, and the one thing that could make it go away is the white heat of real problems. Yeah. Now the 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 trouble with that solution is then you have to have the real problems, and uh, then we remember what trouble is. And Right now, I mean, I'm less concerned on an, epidemiologi an epidemiological level, it's a tongue twister, um, than I am on a, on a fiscal one. So tell us, you know, how, explain that to me. Well, um, my readership may recall that in 2016 I released a book called The Mandibles. Mm. Uh, it's, it takes place in 2029. And... Uh, it involves the economic collapse of the United States, the, the fall of the dollar. And that's triggered by a sovereign debt crisis. Mm. Uh, the, the president refuses to repay the national debt. He cancels it. I would have liked to think that it was in the realm of fantasy, but actually I don't think it is. Mm. And I did a lot of uh, homework for that book. It was the real pleasure of, of that book, actually, the d discovery of the, the world of economics, which I had, I'd, I'd always dismissed it as boring. It's anything but boring now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I came away collectively f with the impression that the entire uh, international financial system was a house of cards that uh, it was fantastically built on debt on, and not real money, not real value, uh, and, and also full of um, 
people propping each other up and lies and uh, I didn't realize before that we we never had a system in place whereby every single currency uh, in the world is a fiat currency, which means there's nothing backing it up and there's nothing stopping governments from producing as much currency as they want, which is what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was petrifying. And therefore, what, f- what frightens me about what's going on with the markets now is that it's not... It may have been sparked by fears of a recession and and the coronavirus and and um, you know, but it, it eventually a, a a virus peaks and goes away. Mm-hmm. I worry that uh, what happens when things are that disruptive is that everyone starts looking down. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what you're told not to do when mm-hmm. you are on a precipice, mm-hmm. and and everyone discovers that that the entire world economy is based on debt. Because that's, of course, how we got out of 2008. We lowered interest rates to zero, sometimes less than zero, which, of course, and this, that was a debt crisis, right? Mm-hmm. It was all those, all those bad loans to people who couldn't pay back their mortgages. And that's really what sparked it. We solved it with more debt. We made it possible to borrow money for nothing. And what do you get? More debt. Mm-hmm. We've been in this be- debt spiral now, and we're not out of it. And it just keeps getting worse. Because all you do is reward debtors, you punish savers, and you make money free. And I don't believe, um, I don't believe capitali- capitalism functions with free money. Uh. You know, Then why not just borrow all the money you need for your life and then die? You don't have to earn anything. I mean, I know that's reductio ad absurdum, but it's not that crazy. It sort of really basically means we're all bankrupt, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I'm, I'm seriously worried. I don't know whether this is when it happens, but uh, in my household we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not clear how to protect oneself from it. And I, I'm convinced that actually there is no protection. When you wrote The Mandibles, mm-hmm. about this, uh, was it was it uh, uh, received as being somehow fantastical or you know um, you know completely unfeasible? Actually, uh, uh, the economists who who read it that I know of uh, found it totally credible. Yeah, which I found both gratifying and and terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be right. I mean, that's one of the weird things about having written that book is that I don't want to be right. Mm. I don't want to be prescient because it's not just going to be me sitting back and and being self-satisfied that I I was prescient, but it's going to happen to me. Mm. It's going to happen to me, it's going to happen to my family and and my friends, and I don't want it. Mm. But when you take a look at the big picture, it's it's just unsustainable. The amount of debt in the world, both private and public, and corporate, is staggering. And... uh, Essentially, it means that we're, we all think there's a... Because debt creates money, right? Mm-hmm. It creates... Because the assumption is that it's going to be paid back. If it's never going to be paid back, and the, the, the numbers look so frightening, that no, I don't think it is ever, on, on any of these levels, is going to be paid back, then 
what is supposedly an asset, because when you borrow money, then the person to whom you owe it regards that loan as an asset. Mm. All that asset is actually a big black hole. It doesn't exist. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be right, yeah. and I don't know whether this is it, but whenever, thing, whenever uh, entire monetary systems are this disturbed, and we never stopped being disturbed since 2008, nothing's ever gone back to normal. Uh, then, then there's the capacity for a, a lack of confidence, a lack of faith in the system, which is what keeps it going, to implode, implode everything. I mean, you, you know, we we were joking at the before we started this yeah. about how, you know, essentially the world monetary system is like belief in fairies, and if you stop believing in fairies, then Tinkerbell dies. What point, you know, at what point do you think a crunch would come then? If you take where we are now, you know, and if the situation is precarious as, as that, as bankrupt as that, at what point do you think, Lionel, it would sort of like suddenly turn over into something else then? At what point would the two collide, you know, the, the epidemic and the economic system? At what point? Well, they're colliding right now. Mm. I mean, uh... Yeah, I think people are are torn about which which issue to worry about. Mm. Uh, I can stay home, and I can wash my hands, but I can't keep my stock portfolio from turning to dust. So, mm. you know, we do what we can do. Ultimately, with th- this, the what I see is a is a dysfunction and and also a form of mass deceit. Um, it's bigger than we are, and we can't fix it. And there's nothing to do but be fatalistic. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know what else to yeah. say. I mean, you, you've written about it, but on the whole, would you say our culture, on the whole, basically doesn't address this? Does it? I mean, uh, are there other novelists or you know artists or playwrights who well, actually talk about um, this? The uh, the apocalyptic apocalyptic narrative is commonplace in fiction. Um, But there are not very many economic dystopias. Mm. And I I think that's where uh, my book tends to stand out. And uh, and I do think that uh, the fragility of economic systems uh, may be even more important than climate change and the other thing is that, is that what we're seeing now is that uh, problems don't exist in a vacuum, mm-hmm. and they interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, economic fragility also interacts with uh, a pandemic, yeah. uh, with climate change, with uh, migration, you know, everything. But the thing is, you do take on these sort of big issues, don't you? Mm-hmm. Healthcare is another one. Yes. You know, you, However, you, improbably. Big Brother. Yeah. yeah. You, you tell oh, uh, actually, so much for that is all about Ameri- uh, the dysfunctions of American health care. Right. So much for that. Um, but, I mean, the point is, on the whole, I think our culture, is it not, is characterized by people not taking on these big things. Well, part of it is, of course, rationally, a lot of fiction readers don't want to read about it. Mm. So, 
you know, it needs to be packaged in such a way that it's a good story and and uh, is involving for its own sake and not just because it's worthy or calling your attention to something that's terribly important. Uh, and, I, I, and first and foremost, whenever I'm writing any book, uh, whatever issue I might be addressing, it's more important than anything to tell an entertaining story mm. that... And, and and that's that's well written and and f- funny, mm. and uh, has lots of dialogue and you know that's my job, mm. and and therefore ultimately I'm I'm uh, when I take on bigger issues it's always a, a kind of candy coating, you know I uh, I'm making it fun. You know? But they're there. I mean, that's the background to them. I mean, I was reminded, sure. I was reminded of this uh, when you wrote recently in The Spectator, um, if I could just give a bit of background. You wrote recently, after I think uh, one of those question time appearances, mm-hmm. um, you sort of got notification of the end of a friendship from, mm-hmm. a, from another writer. But you mentioned you did an open letter in The Spectator. This is what you wrote. And, and you said, you know, I tend to take on broader broad issues and I think that you said this person tended to be more intimate shall we say mm-hmm, in their writing mm-hmm. um, but you know that was quite extraordinary really. this was a relatively long friendship yeah 13 years and what happened actually like, what, what, what happened to end it uh, well of course uh, my uh, as a fiction writer I probably shouldn't be going on question time to begin with the risks are too high um, well, and I don't do it very often. No, but you're a columnist for Spectator. But I am a columnist, and I take an interest in mm. British politics, and uh, and I'm one of the people they call who isn't, you know, on the far left. Mm. One of the few people, you know, that they use to try to balance the panel, and 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 a non-politician, obviously. So that was a. An episode in which um, once more uh, the outrage of uh, Boris Johnson's comparing uh, a, a woman, a veiled woman, to a letterbox was touted out as proof that uh, he's a terrible racist. And you know, throughout the campaign, it was also uh, used as an example of why the entire Tory party is racist. And I just said, and, uh, excuse me, but what is so insulting about being compared to a letterbox? Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's self-evident. Mm-hmm. It's a small element of domestic architecture. <laughs> um, it's like saying, uh, you look like a window sash. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Wounding. And I and and Wounding. I one of the reasons I said that I get I get so frustrated that people take take on faith how they should interpret something like that, you know why don't they think from themselves? Well, hold on a minute. Well, that's it's kind of a kooky comparison, but why is that so hurtful? Mm. So I got into an argument with a couple of Muslim women who were, uh, you know, you know the type professionally incensed. And they probably hire themselves out for parties, um, and uh, and this I, this this and a couple of other remarks was enough to lose me this friendship. And I I did find it shocking uh, 
it's a this is a very decent nice person and I was uh, I was really disappointed and I went through an interesting emotional sequence because you know often when people do something that you that strikes home mm -hmm. then your first reaction is anger which is very defensive it's like um, and then once you get a little perspective, you have to admit to yourself that what you're really experiencing is, is a sense of injury. Yes, and, and, yes. And sorrow and hurt. Mm. And uh, for me, it was completely to the opposite, opposite uh, sequence. Because I felt hurt first. Yes. And then I realized, actually, I'm fucking furious. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and to to have been sacked as a friend because I didn't think that calling, comparing someone to a letter, letterbox was especially insulting. I mean, mm. that has comic potential, but mm. it, you know, it was real. Mm. And, uh, and it made me sympathetic with a lot of other people who are having the same problems. I mean, we now live in a very polarized time when uh, relationships are, are conditional. And, um, you know, I know that a lot of uh, a lot of relationships have been severed over Brexit, and of course that was part of the basket of complaints but that my think, friend has. I think we talked about this last time, but it always appeared one way. I'm sorry, to, to me, it's always appeared one way. It's just that basically, in the case of Brexit, the Remainer of course finds it impossible mm -hmm. uh, because this is some kind of implicit comment on them that they could even be friends with someone who voted Brexit. I mean, in this case, with your friend in this in this, in this uh, particular case, mm -hmm. uh, from what I can gather, this person said, uh, we don't share the same values. Right. Uh, how, wait a minute, 13, 14 year friendship. Uh, it would take a, a, surely a very long time, therefore, for this person to have discovered that you don't share. What does yeah, it even you would think that what my values were would be fairly yeah. apparent early mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the left always uses that kind of language when they mean that, you're, that, that they're accusing you of being a bigot. A bigot. Um, that, mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. not having the, mm -hmm. the same values always means. Uh, and you know, this has been observed plenty, so it's not fresh, but the, the, yes, uh, people on the left now are sufficiently self-righteous that they and and believe that the uh, uh, correctness of their causes is so self-evident that if you disagree on anything, because you know, they they subscribe to a, a set menu of opinions, if you disagree on anything, then you are not simply wrong; you are evil. It is, it, yeah. and you know this is uh, this is a polarity that that means that you've no longer got a functional. Uh, public discourse. Well, one of the areas that you know it should be an area for di where discourse happens, of course, is in the arts generally, mm -hmm. and uh, it's something that I think we would agree on. But saw it in black and white recently. There was a report that came out from a group called Arts Professional. I think that they are, you know, an employment uh, body, as it were, for people who work in the arts. And they came out with, it was reported in the Times, you probably mm, yeah, saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, it was reported extraordinary level of the monolithic opinion and that people who sort of in any way 
resile from what is considered to be the right opinion are ostracized and uh, this report said that some people even had things like gagging orders or something put on them but it was very frightening actually yeah. but this is the well it was a documentation of what we suspected anyway yes. uh, that uh, the arts uh, have across the board and that's across media uh, have become exclusively not just left wing but quite hard left we're always flopping about trying to figure out what language to use to identify this particular sector. Um, and, and, and it brooks no argument. Hmm. Uh, it also controls uh, who gets money, who gets their plays put on. Um, there was that uh, Brexit, one of the rare productions of uh, people like us. Oh. Uh, that uh, I didn't see it. I should have. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it was. It had one production. It was hugely popular, and then never. You know, no one picked it up. No one took it to the next level. Whereas there were these remainder plays all over the place. Um, you know, the battle of ideas uh, lost its uh, venue. Did uh, it? The Barbican. Really? Uh, because Claire was a an MEP for the Brexit Party, and that was it. She was demonized. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Going to be talking to Claire later, actually. Really? Yeah. Tell really? her I said. I, well. I had no idea about that. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, those are real instances, and they, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Uh, the I, I, I'm a little mystified how this happened because you would think that the arts draw maverick personalities but apparently not no not in my experience yeah <laughs> not, not at all no. uh, and I can't I I was thinking about this on the way over it has to have something to do with the fact that now artists tend to go to schools you know they get educated in creative writing or they they get degrees in visual art whereas you know, in the olden days, if you wanted to be an artist of any sort, you just struck out on your own. And if you wanted to be a writer, you read a bunch of books and sat around writing stuff. You didn't get a degree. And uh, that means that uh, artists are heavily infected by uh, the, what's going on in universities and that kind of group think. Mm. One, of most, one of the scariest uh, examples of uh, group think... Uh, most recently is the Woody Allen story. I was going to ask you exactly about that. I yeah. mean, this is Woody Allen's memoir. Yeah. It's apropos of nothing. Yes. And basically, I think in a nutshell, somebody objected to it, the publishing house, and there was a sort of walkout, I think, of people. If the, we are not going to publish this book. What was their objection? Okay. First off, I thought it was pretty shameful. That um, that this memoir was sent around to all the major, major publishers, and only one of them would pick it up. Uh, according to my my editor in New York, she read it. She said it's a very good book, mm. and uh, publishing for the most part publishes tons of terrible books. So if it was a very good book, you would think that with a famous author, someone would pick pick it up. But you know, yes, but and it was. Picked up on the QT by yeah. Hachette. They did not 
advertise it much, which is not like, you know, that's not the way publishing is supposed to work. You're supposed to go, ah, ah. So it was as if, you know, it, it, was, it was shameful. Mm. Um, and then, I don't know what, know what took the staff so long to figure out that this book was coming out, because it was, I think it was supposed to be up, out next month. Yeah, yeah. That means it has to be pretty much ready to go. Oh, they're pulping it, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the staff and it and I it is my impression that it is the lower level staff you know basically a bunch of editorial assistants which means you know they're twelve years old and um and they staged a one day walkout and Hachette freaked out and withdrew the publication after very little pressure and I find this upsetting in so many different levels um, what they're upset about. Uh, is uh, this accusation by his uh, daughter Dylan that he sexually assaulted her when she was seven years old. This accusation has been exhaustively investigated by two different government bodies, one for eight months, one for 14 months. They found nothing. And her story is riddled with inconsistencies. And I don't know about you, but when I remember barely being seven years old, you know, it's just like this. It's a very, it's a, that's that early on, those memories are poorly formed and fragile. And in early memories, being fragile and impressionistic and um, made of little scraps are very easy to imprint upon. And her mother's a nut. Her mother is a nut, hated Woody Allen because he married uh, her adoptive daughter. It's another issue. Um, and, and I think that uh, she brainwashed her kids. And she, there's just no evidence. And, and yet, because, and, and it was more or less originally dismissed, but then there was the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're supposed to believe women. Mm. It's one of the creepiest slogans I've ever heard. Mm. Um, which is, as I've, I've written before, right next door to believe everybody. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes. um, and then suddenly, we're supposed to believe this story. And of course, Ronan Farrow, her brother, mm. who's become very powerful, uh, is also behind this, and he made a haughty, he took his own book away from Hachette in protest that they are publishing Woody Allen's uh, memoir. So that, that, that added, I think, an, an additional economic incentive to Cave. But uh, the precedent set is horrifying. Mm. I mean, first off, there's the precedent of, of no due, due process, mm -hmm. that Woody Allen is being um, crucified by rumor, mm -hmm. by impression. There have never been any charges. Actually, no, no. That. By a kind of contemporary superstition that if a, a woman m makes an accusation, then she must be right. And, you know, he has no history of child abuse or sexual assault of any kind. And though, in a completely cowardly manner, in my opinion, there have been a number of actors who have post Me Too 
uh, announced that they will never w work with him again. Oh, more than that, regretted working oh, with yes, him. Oh, yes, and regretted working mm. with him. Mm. Uh, there's no, there's no basis for this. But the thing is, you see, Lionel, with this, because there's no basis at all. But even there's been, a, it's a bit of a problem, really. Even if there had been a basis, take Ron, Ronan Polanski, for example. Right. I, 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 I think it's important to keep both stories apart. Oh, you do? Yeah. I mean, he was convicted. Right. Of rape. Right. Do you think, therefore, that, for example, in another sort of act of censorship, if you like, we are not being able to see his latest film um, about Dreyfus? It's not going to be distributed in America. It's not going to be distributed here. I, I all, you know, I, I think it's important to keep them separate right. because okay. uh, because Woody Allen has never been convicted of anything. Okay. Okay. okay? Uh, it is true that if we're going to look at Polanski separately, I have been a big advocate of not confusing the art and the artist. Right. So, I, as, as you do, I sense, yeah. I would like to see the new film. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I don't need to be morally protected mm. because the person who made it is tainted. Mm. You know? That doesn't mean that he shouldn't be uh, sent back to the U.S. to serve his sentence. Fair enough. But uh, I, I, I'd like to see the movie. Well, yes, right. I mean, the thing is, if you go back, it's, it's a cliche, I know, but if you go back through all the history of, of writing and, and visual art, and music, there are some pretty appalling people, you know, behind them. You oh, know, yeah. With a, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think this is a, an arts consumer issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just a matter of protecting the artists who, who are all fallen angels. Mm -hmm. um, I should know. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but the arts consumer has a right to the stuff. I want, I want the stuff. I want the books, the movies, the paintings uh, uh, made by these imperfect people. And just because the people who made them are imperfect doesn't mean that the work they make is not wonderful. I, and, 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 you know, I've been consistent on this point. I'm... I, I know that lots of people are very gossipy and in, involved in uh, the the real lives of the artists they enjoy, the, the the writers, et cetera, you know, and they're fascinated by their real life story. I never have been. I never read literary biographies. I don't care who made them. I really don't. I'm just interested in, in the books. I want to look at the paintings. I want to listen to the music. And I don't care who made it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not prescriptive, and I'm not saying that everyone has to be that way. And if you're curious about the the nature of the people who make what you love or hate, uh, fine, you know. But I'm just saying I I have been consistent. I do think there is a separation between people and what they make. Yeah. And um, and I want what they make to be put on the marketplace. I would like to be able to read uh, Woody Allen's memoir. Yes, I was in America recently and I was looking forward to getting it and I, I was a bit behind the loop. There. Mm -hmm. But this thing of, of basically the artist being quite separate from the work, um, there is some sort of parallel here as well with the, what you would call the general air now of restriction on free speech. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the sense that rather than the... the the man rather the, or woman rather than the ball, if you like, is played, you know. So if they say something, it's basically the attack tends to be on the individual. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, seems to be a very, 
is it puritanical? I mean, it's, it's certainly like the crucible, mm -hmm. you know, where you are somehow something that you are or that you've done is going to scar you and everything you say or do from now on. And I, I, I'm thinking of this because recently uh, Toby Young, who we had on the show, started mm -hmm. the Free Speech Union, yes. uh, which I've joined. And I know that you've yes. joined. And in fact, you spoke at the, uh, well, on camera at least, mm -hmm. at, the, at the launch. I mean, what have we come to? No, no, when you need, in Britain, a free speech union. Well, it's depressing, isn't it? I mean, it shouldn't be necessary. Um, and I think, you know, it's a potentially useful mm. organization because I think the experience of, of, you know, being the subject of some kind of pile-on is one of tremendous helplessness mm. and... You know, why me and what do I do? And uh, this is providing a, a resort. You know, this is what you do. Maybe you need a lawyer. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you need to go after people who are maligning you in, in, a, in a libelous manner. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think it's a great idea, but it, but it is a sign of the times that, that Toby was moved to establish it. I think as well, though, it's, it, there's another problem, isn't there, surely, that when these things arise, my feeling often is, good, it's good, we probably should have many more of these associations. We mm -hmm. hope in our way to do something like that mm -hmm. here. You know, but I think that the biggest thing facing us, surely, is self-censorship, that mm -hmm. these things are now so internalized, you know, I mean, whether it's writers, you know, or uh, that, that somehow or other, you know, the horse is bolted. You know, the, the horse is bolted. You know, and that now we're locking the game. You know, that it's essentially it's so now inside us that we just simply won't do or say certain things. Yes, which is a larger issue than the arts. Mm, yes, I think that yes. this is something that uh, the entire Western public is now suffering from mm. uh, a sense that you'd better keep your mouth shut. Um, that if you can't keep up with the latest lingo, uh, it's better to say nothing and stay on safe subjects. Uh, but the narrowing of what it is permissible to say and to abdicate and to um, illustrate in the arts is, a, is also a loss for everyone and not just for artists. Mm -hmm. it, is, it means that there is a very narrow range of subject matter and viewpoint available for purchase. I mean, you know, that all the movies and all the, all the books, uh, basically all you can buy is racism is bad. Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, racism is bad, and that's just bores the pants off me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am recording, um, what's it called? Knots and Crosses. Oh yeah. Right? I haven't seen it yet, and I notice that I, though I've got two episodes, I still haven't watched it. And there's a way that I have, I'm going to have to force myself just because, it's not because I'm a raving bigot, though you notice that as soon as I say that, it sounds suspicious. <laughs> um, it's because I can't stand moral obviousness. Mm -hmm. And so... This is a big racism is bad production, and I hate having that shoved down my throat. Mm -hmm. 
It's pretty much part of the course, isn't it? As you say, in, it's in, in all of our productions now, drama, whatever, these issues are shoehorned in yeah. all, all the time. Um, do you think that... And I feel condescended to. Oh, yes. But this might be one of the reasons as well why British drama, particularly, uh, I know more about that is it, it, than other dramas, but it seems to have lost its place as being amongst the greatest because it's always correcting history and it's always sort of saying that this is the bad guy, this is the good guy. Oh, it's, well, it's, well, it's the very definition of propaganda, mm. right? And who wants to watch that? Mm. It's, it's tedious. So that's the thing. One of my biggest concerns is not just as an artist that I feel a little hemmed in, a lot hemmed in, um, but uh, I don't want to consume most of this direct. You know, and and one of the one of the horrible things that seems to have happened with in the arts is it isn't just the narrowness of the viewpoint, but this notion seems to have taken hold that the purpose of art is to morally instruct. And I'm sorry, but when I watch a television drama, open a novel, I don't want to be told, you know, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want a Sunday school lesson. I want to be entertained. I want something to, to happen that's unexpected. I want to see some daring. I want to see people do things that I wouldn't have thought of myself. You know, I just, I want something that redeems the time I give it. And I, I, this whole idea that what motivates people to go to the arts and why we have the arts is just to promote virtue is perverse. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also produces, big surprise, bad art. Exactly. Uh, uh, I mean, would you ever, as a writer, an artist, would you ever take on this issue in a novel? When I say this issue, I mean the one we've been discussing, i.e. the increasing restriction on free speech. Would this ever, would this ever form the backdrop of a, of, of a novel? Oh, of course, the big danger is, is having the same problem in reverse. Mm and writing more propaganda. Um, it's funny, the Alameda Theater came to me a couple of years ago, uh, inviting me to write a play having something to do with identity politics. And while I was at first attracted to it, and I put it kind of on the back burner, the reason I haven't returned to it uh, is I'm afraid of just, yeah, just doing the same thing, and 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 still being polemical. Yeah. And you know, doing a, a kind of go Jordan Peterson play, mm-hmm. which isn't you know I don't have mm-hmm. a big problem with him, but uh, you have big problems. I do not. You do not. I do okay. not. But I I I. I don't want to write a novel or a play that is too freighted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, there's a little section in the novel that comes out this spring. Yes, yeah, so as you know, so, uh, right? this is finished and done. I was going to ask mm-hmm. if you were working on it. Are you on? Yeah, okay. it's in the can. Yeah. I am working on something, but 
It will be out in the spring. It will be out at the beginning of May. Do we are we allowed a title? Do we know? Or it's anything? called the motion of the body through space. The motion of the body through space. Right. And its primary target is the cult of exercise. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So it's not mm. entirely about you know evil identity identity politics, but it does have a little backstory. Well, that's and, fascinating. And, that's real and because I have a character who becomes obsessed with these uh, extreme endurance sports. And, you know, you need something to get him there. there wh- why was this mild-mannered guy who basically a couch potato most of his life suddenly driven um, to become a hard body like that? And so I designed it. A backstory in which he had recently um, and ignominiously uh, been sacked from his job, uh, and it was because of an altercation with uh, an incompetent diversity hire right. who became his boss. Right. And of course, just the crafting of an incompetent diversity hire yes. is extremely dangerous. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I know, I I knew that. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So there's probably a little element of red flag to the ball there because I can either avoid this stuff and be very cautious with that kind of self-censorship, which is what you were talking about, um, or I can say, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But this, oh, but you know, your main character is this guy. Uh-huh. Right. You're not staying in your lane, you know. I mean, you know this whole stay in your lane business. I know, I know, and I deliberately uh, put yeah. two black characters in the new, new book, yeah. and that's by way of carving out my right to yes, craft exactly. black characters. Um, and I think that a lot of writers, uh, a lot of white writers, are avoiding that now. Mm. And uh, you know, in, in some ways, you may the. Uh, the people who are big on diversity and otherwise big on, on diversity in fiction may may get what they they um, don't ever say expressly that they want, which is white writers only writing about white people, mm. and you know you've you've only got you know you've you've now got this kind of back to the 1950s apartheid mm. Um, mm. because it's because it's too dangerous. I mean. You know, I'm sure you follow the uh, American Dirt story. Mm. When is the book coming out? Um, I think it's the 5th of May. 5th of May. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I mean, I would definitely read that because I'm, I've, you know, if it's the whole issue of exercise, which of course, you know, this is a taking one issue and mm-hmm. just drawing all sorts of things. Well, in some society. ways, it's me one more time going for the sacred cows of the mm. of the contemporary culture mm. and exercise mm. has become next to godliness in the western world um it's it's the one thing that people are now even touchier about than their weight though there's a little intersection mm. you've done that though with big brother weight yeah yeah you? but i didn't want to do that again no, but no. i'm very interested in the fact that especially during the last 20 years and nobody ever talks about the phenomenon. They talk about what they're doing and what their workout regime is. I mean, you, it, it gets incredibly tiresome. Mm. I and mean, there's a, you know, the, the, the number of events, these mass events, um, 
climbing some mountain or running up and down the Empire State Building or not to mention all the triathlons and the marathons. I mean, they just keep multiplying. But I, I've just, I don't notice anybody calling attention to the phenomenon itself. Mm -hmm. Stepping back and say, how do we get here? Why, why are we so consumed with this? Why is that what everyone is talking about? Why is that what we're now more competitive with each other about than any other thing? I've always sort of thought, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, I can't be a hypocrite here. I've always uh -huh. sort of exercised and everything. Although now I just do boxing. But um, I've always found it very boring. But I always sort of felt that it was all about vanity in the sense that... Oh, it's mostly vanity. You know, if someone brought out a pill which meant that you look fantastic naked, mm -hmm. the gyms would empty. That's right. Actually, that's but, funny. There's a, there's a, a little passage in, um, in my new book in which I, I made up a short story. I didn't actually write the story, so it's, you just get a summary of a story that I never wrote, but it's about a, a, a world of the future in which there's something called a morphotron that will work out your body while you sleep. <laughs> and I think, it's my, I think it's my personal fantasy. Because I find exercise, I love playing tennis. That's totally sacred. Um, but uh, exercise in general is extremely tedious. Yeah. It's very boring. And I would love to just plug in. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thank you very, very much Norm, for coming. Um, look forward to that new book in a couple of months' time. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of yeah. fun. Thank yeah. you very much for coming. Thanks for coming back again. I, I do hope that it's not an, another year before you do join us again. I think maybe around about the time, possibly, of the presidential election. I'd be very uh, pleased to have you on. You know, because you have okay. dual citizenship, yeah, don't you? You have, uh, you can vote in America, can't yes. you? And everything. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Any thoughts on what you might think happen? Might happen that? Well, of course, at this exact juncture, yeah. it looks like Biden's going to be the nominee. Uh, Trump is in big trouble. He's not handling this uh, virus very well. Uh, and it looks as if he might well lose. But then who knows what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, it's politics is, and, and the whole world has become so weird that making predictions is, is foolish. Uh, I, all I can say is I, I hope that Trump is defeated. I, I think it would be really bad news for my country to, to have him president for another four years. You've never been a fan of his subject? Oh, no. No, no. no. Well, in that case, uh, when it's happening... Please do come back, won't you? Okay. Thank you very much, Lionel. Uh, that's it for this time. So see you next time on So What You're Saying Is, and thank you for watching. Thanks. Bye.